It's good to worship together. I am so thankful for the time that uh, Kathy and I had to be away. Uh, and one of the things that I'm so thankful for is that I can be away and things go on just as they are and probably even better than they would have been had I been here. I'm thankful for the people that serve in our church in so many ways. I'm thankful for the staff that uh, serves in so many ways. And God has been good and he will continue to build this church. As we come to Genesis chapter three, we come to a significant portion in scripture. In fact, I'm not sure if there's two or three words that are more ominous than the first two or three words of Genesis chapter three. And in fact, of the whole sentence that's in Genesis chapter one, where we simply read, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made, he said. These words, I think, mark the start of the greatest story ever told. They flow out of Genesis 1 and 2, almost with a sense of shock, but they lead into the story of redemption of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. A while back, I heard a summary of the Bible, which I have never heard before, but it is a wonderful summary. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Reminds me of that Ikea commercial where she thought she had got a good deal. Start the car, start the car. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Three main protagonists or three main characters in the story. One is the serpent or the dragon or the reptile, a ferocious beast, a destructive beast, a devouring beast, the damsel in distress, which are the people of God, the church, Israel, those who put their trust in Christ, and the serpent slayer, which is none other than Jesus Christ. The serpent, this reptile, this dragon, seeks to deceive and to devour the woman, the church, the people of God. But the serpent slayer, Jesus Christ, crushes its head. It is a story that spans the breadth of time. It's contained in scripture from Genesis chapter three to Revelation chapter 20, this battle, this act of defeat over the dragon. It's a story that for now has covered 6,000 years plus. It's the story of human history. But in fact, it's a story that had its beginnings before the world even began, before time began. And it's a story that stretches into eternity future when time will be no more. It's a story that includes snakes and dragons. And it's a story about a serpent and his three main strategies to destroy the damsel. One is to deceive. He is full of deception, and we know that through Scripture. We know that in our lives. Its strategy is to devour, to eat, and to destroy, and to crush the girl. Its strategy is to accuse and to beat us down with the accusations of our sin. When the serpent attempts to devour, it is a dragon. When the serpent 
attempts to deceive, it is a snake. And when the serpent attempts to accuse, it is Satan, our accuser, our opponent. I want to give you a quick summary so you have the full gospel summary or the story of kill the dragon, get the girl, before we come back to the details of Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. If you've been here with us for a little while, you know the story begins in bliss, in the Garden of Eden, in this world that God has created for man and woman to inhabit and to flourish in, in relationship and enjoyment and in service to God in this pristine, perfect world. But enter the dragon, the snake, with his strategy to deceive and to tempt and to lie and to backstab. And we have the record of the first deception of Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. As the story then develops throughout human history, the serpent craftily alternates between deception and devouring and accusation as it attempts to kill the girl or to crush the girl. Sometimes it attempts to deceive God's people through false teachers. Sometimes it attempts to assault God's people through violent opposition to the cause of Christ. Sometimes the tempter serpent tries to destroy us individually through his accusations whispered in our heart. At the climax of the story, we find that the dragon attempts to devour the hero of the story, but he fails. The dragon murders Jesus, but merely bruises his heel. And Jesus rises from the dead and begins to crush the serpent's head. For the rest of the story, we read from the resurrection till the day when Christ returns, we read how the dragon furiously makes war against the girl, seeking to devour and destroy it yet again. But the hero's mission is to fully kill the dragon and to rescue the girl. And when you come to the end of the book of Revelation, you find that the hero has won that the dragon has been cast into the lake of fire that burns forever and ever and ever. And we will enter once again into a garden that God has prepared for us. That story just makes me want to stand up and cheer. Go, Jesus. Genesis 3 is monumental. As we read beginnings of Genesis chapter 3, and we'll get to it over the next week, it explains why this world is as it is. It explains why we are as we are. Here we have the true diagnosis of the human condition. In this single event which changed everything, we understand why the universe as it is. We understand why humanity is as it is. It describes the human dilemma and why we need a savior. It's the necessary foundation of any accurate, true worldview, a way of understanding the world in which we live. And it begins with these three words, now the serpent. These are startling words. They are words that really are very much out of place. They're, they're, they, they, they sound a minor uh, chord, so to speak, as we begin reading in chapter 3. Because as we consider how the story has unfolded this far, in Genesis chapter 1, we have the biblical, a biblical cosmology. 
we have God's description of how this universe and how the heavens and the earth came into existence. We have the account of creation from God's perspective. We were not there. No human being was there. There was nobody that existed before the world began. And so we understand that this is how God describes the creation of this world in which we live. And so God, and the word for God in all of Genesis chapter one is Elohim. It's a word which speaks of his majesty, of his power, of his transcendence, of his distance from creation. And over the course of six days, it describes in the book of Genesis, he spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. And as people of God, we come to understand Hebrews chapter 11, verse three, where it says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The climax of Genesis chapter one and the creation of the heavens and the earth is the creation of male and female, made in the image of God, in the likeness of God, he made them male and female. And we understand as we look at Genesis 1 and the description of the creation of the world, how God has intentionally quickly gone from the creation of the heavens to the creation of the earth and the details of the earth in such a way that he quickly zeroes in that man is the focus of his creative work that male and female have been created to inhabit a world specially fashioned and formed for them. And as we will see, in fact, what God has created is a theater of redemption, a stage that God has made through which the drama of redemption and salvation will take place. In fact, God had described at the end of all his work in those six days of creation, he describes it as very good. And the point that I want to make in that is that animals are not the focus. He just describes quickly, he made the beasts of the field, he made the birds of the air, he made the fish of the sea. Animals are not the focus. Male and female, Adam and Eve, are the focus. So when we read in verse one of chapter three, now the serpent, it's a shock. And it should surprise us. Why is an animal the focus? In Genesis two, verse four, we start then, with the first description, um, the first boundary for the whole book of Genesis. Genesis is framed by this statement, which is repeated 10 times. These are the generations of. They're called Toledeth sayings, and they, they describe something and then what follows. And this is the only one that doesn't follow with a human name. It simply says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And in fact, what it does from Genesis 2, 4 to the end of chapter 4, it describes what became of the heavens and the earth. How we move from this pristine garden to the disaster in the garden, chapter 3, to being cast out of the garden to live our existence until Christ comes back in chapter 4. One of the fascinating things about this section of scripture from Genesis 2, 4 to the end of chapter 4 is that the word for God, the name for God that is used is different from chapter 1. It's Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is the personal name of God. It is the relational name of God. It is the, the name that God uses when he comes to be with his people and to dwell among them. And so in Genesis chapter two, verse four, we have now a God who is with us and who is among us. We find that they had all that they needed. That in this garden that God had created, that Adam and Eve had everything they could ever imagine. 
a special place in the garden, a temple, so to speak, where they could walk with God, where they could talk with God, and they could serve God. The implication of uh, the last part of chapter two is that God has created a place where he will have fellowship with male and female, the ones that he has made, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And all of a sudden we read, now the serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, he said. It appears suddenly, this focus on this serpent. It's one of uh, uh, 11 Hebrew words that are used to uh, refer to snakes or to vipers or to dragons. It's one of five Greek words that are used to describe snakes or dragons. First of all, it's a physical snake. It's a real snake. We don't have a description of this animal. It's given a name. We are simply told now the snake or the serpent was one of the beasts of the field that God had made. That's important for us to just fix in our minds as well. This was a creature that God had made. We don't really know what the snake looked like. We don't really have an understanding of what the snake looked like. You look at illustrations of the Garden of Eden and the snake is already a slithering creature. It's often depicted as slithering amongst the branches of a tree or slithering on the ground and cobra-like lifting up its head to speak to Eve. Well, that's post-curse. Pre-curse, there's a full assumption that this could have been an upright animal. It would have been a magnificent beast. It would have been, 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 been something of awe and something of wonder, one of the beasts of the field that God had made. It, it, it could have been a snake. It could have been a reptile. It could have been a dragon. It, it could have been any one of those sorts of descriptions of snake-like beings. Precurse, it was a beautiful, magnificent creature that God had made. And Eve wasn't troubled by it. She wasn't bothered by it. It's like she was familiar with this snake, that she had seen it before. It was an animal because after the curse, or after the fall, it was cursed. It, as a physical animal, it was cursed to slither on the ground and to eat dust for the rest of its life. But it was more than a snake, or there was more going on than meets the eye. We know this because animals don't talk. We're not talking about Dr. Doolittle here in Genesis chapter one and two. This is an unusual creature. Something is going on here. God did not make the animals to speak. Even though the physical snake was one of God's good creations, and while there's no attempt to explain its capacity to speak, it spoke. That alone should have alerted Eve. Of all the beasts of the field that God had made, there was something different about this one. One of these beasts is not like the rest. It speaks. We know it was more than a physical snake because animals aren't rational beings. Moses writes that this snake was more crafty than any other beast that God had made. Crafty means subtle, cunning, intelligent, wise. It's not a a characteristic that we attribute to animals in saying that this animal is more crafty than that animal. Craftiness is a consequence of rational thinking. It's a marker of intelligence. It's not a characteristic of snakes any more than it is of cows. But what made this 
snake more crafty than any other beast of field because it was impersonated in some way or controlled in some way by a presence and a force other than the snake. The personality inside this animal knew the effect of the choice that he was going to put before Adam and Eve. The choice of, I believe, wanting to be like God. The temptation to Eve was, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. This snake knew the disastrous consequences of that choice. And now he was about to foist that choice upon God's good creation. We know it was more than a physical snake because the curse placed upon it in Genesis 3.15. We know this because the New Testament description of the saint or of the snake. While Moses is clear of the origin of this snake, that it's from God, no attempt is made to explain the origin of evil that is at work in this snake. The Bible doesn't explain the precise way that the snake made its way into the garden, how it related to Eve. But somehow this physical snake was possessed by a presence. Whether that presence transformed itself into a snake or influenced the existing snake, it's not entirely sure. But what we do know is that the snake was an instrument through which evil or temptation entered into human existence. Who is this creature? Who is this snake? You see, if you read Genesis chapter three, nowhere in Genesis chapter three will you find it referred to in any other way as a snake, as a serpent. In fact, you can read the whole of the Old Testament and you will only find three places in the Old Testament where the actual word Satan is used in the book of Job, Job 1 and 2, in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah 3, in the book of First Chronicles. And there's no connection in those three places with the serpent in the garden. The Old Testament reveals a battle between invisible forces and evil forces, but the identity of the snake in Genesis 3.1 remains veiled. It's not until you come to Revelation chapter 20 and Revelation chapter 12, the very last book of the Bible, written probably in AD 90, at least that's when I assume it was written around AD 90, that all of a sudden we now know the identity of the snake in the garden. Revelation chapter 20, you're familiar with it. We've gone through it, but Revelation 20 begins this way. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over that he might not deceive the nations any longer. This is the first time the ancient serpent is identified as the dragon, as the devil, and as Satan. And then you go back to Revelation chapter 12, 
And there again, you have this, one of the most extraordinary passages of scripture describing what took place in heaven and how that impacted what took place on earth. And we read there, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them on the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Christ. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she was nourished for 1260 days. Now a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There is no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now we know who the snake is in Genesis chapter one or three, verse one. It is the fiery red dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil or the slanderer, the Satan, our adversary, the one who deceives the world, the accuser of the brethren. Where does Satan come from? I'm sure the first readers of Genesis wondered this as Moses gave them the book in probably around 1400 B.C., Where did the snake come from? What was it doing in the garden? Let's back up just a little bit. At some point in eternity, God created spiritual beings without number. I say at some point because we don't really know when that was. I don't really know when that was. There's some hint of it though in Job chapter 38 verses four to seven where God is responding to Job's query and his demand for justice. And he wants to know why God has allowed all this stuff to happen to him. And finally God says, okay, Job, let's have a conversation. I, I wanna ask you a few questions about the world in which we live and, and see how you uh, answer them and see what you know. And so in, Genesis, or in Job 34 or 38 verses four to seven, he begins this way. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? (laughs) Great question. It's a question, Job, where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? And on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. I think what Job, God is saying is there was a heavenly party when I began to create the heavens and the earth. The morning stars and the sons of God are references to angels. So it's reasonable to conclude, I think, in my mind that there were angels present when God began to create the world. They, ha- they could have been in existence for millions of years, we don't know, or they could have been just recently created. I don't know which is, but what Job does say is they were present when God began to create the heavens and the earth. I say they were created beings as well because they were created by God. 
Evil is not its own force. There is no such thing as dualism. God is the supreme one, the only God, and he made everything that exists, including the spiritual beings that inhabit a different dimension around us. I say created by God because Genesis 1 and 2, I believe, describe the creation of the physical material universe and the earth in which we live and in which we function. But Colossians 1.16 describes the creation of a whole spiritual reality. These two owe their existence to God. Colossians 1.16 simply tells us this, that for by him, which is Christ, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And I was reading in Ephesians this morning, just filling out this thrones and authorities and in uh, Ephesians 4, 6 is pretty clear that there's a spiritual reality all around us for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So God has created the spiritual reality and the spiritual beings all around us. They were created by his word, brought into existence. Their number is fixed, not like human beings. And we assume that simply from Jesus' word where he tells us that angels do not marry or are given in marriage. Why did God create angels? Well, they were created to serve and to glorify God. You read that throughout scripture again and again to praise him and, and, to, and to worship him. You come to Revelation or uh, Isaiah chapter six and you find the angels around the throne of God worshiping and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You go to Revelation chapter four and again, you find the angels around the throne worshiping God. But you also realize that they were created to serve and to minister to humankind. Hebrews tells us, it says, are they not ministering spirits sent out to, for the sake of those who inherit salvation? There is a work that the angels do at God's behest on our behalf. Psalm 91.11, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. In 1 Corinthians 6.3, a text that I still wrestle with to this day, that we will judge angels. I don't fully understand that. I can give you an answer, but it's just my speculation. So how many angels then were created? They were created by God. They were created to serve God and to worship God and to carry out the commands of God and to serve humankind that God had made. Well, how many angels did God create? In a few weeks, we're going to be into Easter and uh, we will probably read, maybe not here, but you on your own will read in the garden that uh, the disciples wanted Jesus to free himself. And Jesus said to them, I could have called 12 legions of angels. A legion is 6,000 men. 12 legions then is 72,000 angels. 
And you wonder, well, that's a lot of angels and that's a lot of men, 72,000, but so? And then my head went to thinking and finding a text and I found it in 2 Kings 19.35 where it tells us that 185,000 Syrian soldiers were killed by one angel. That's a lot of power and a lot of might and a lot of strength. But then you read Revelation 5.11 and it says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders a voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. How many, you say? Too many to count. And then in Hebrews we read, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering. How many again? Well, innumerable. You can't count them. Too many to count. This vast company of spiritual beings. And here we will now the serpent. Well, at some point, and the Bible describes it, a large group of angels rebelled against God, led by Satan. I find this extraordinarily difficult to wrap my head around. Beings created by God, perfect, blameless, who choose to follow one being who said, I'm not happy with my lot in heaven, serving God, obeying God. They had it all, and yet they rebelled against their creator. We know that the leader of that rebellion was Satan. Jesus expressly says at the end of this age when he judges the world to those guilty of rebellion against him, he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Just fixing your head, if you kind of sort of think I'm puffing up Satan, just know that his end is sure. His doom is certain. He will be crushed. He will be destroyed. He will be cast into the lake of fire. Never let me leave you thinking that he is more powerful than God. He's a created being. How many angels followed Satan in his rebellion? Well, I read from Revelation chapter 12, and it, it seems to suggest that a third of the angels, this vast, innumerable host that God created, threw their lot in with Satan. Some of those hosts we read in 2 Peter and Jude are presently bound. Some would argue that those ones are ones that were specifically involved in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, and the ungodly union of angels and humans that took place. But there's a whole host that are bound and are bound until the judgment. But there are other of those demonic hosts that are active in the world in which we live. This serpent is real. The dragon is real. The devil is real. Satan is real. Matthew chapter 4 describes Jesus' interaction with the devil or Satan. Jesus casts out demons that filled people's lives. He describes the character of Satan as a murderer and a liar from the beginning. The New Testament writers speak of his power, of his tactics, of the fact that he can disguise himself as an angel of light, the fact that we are to 
be aware or not ignorant of the schemes or the wiles of the devil, of the disguises of the evil one, of his dominance even over this present world. What happened? It's one of the most perplexing problems that we face as Christians. Did something just happen with the lights? Huh. <laughs> wow. I could see, but now I'm blind. <laughs> now I'm blind, but I can see. What happened? How do you explain the existence of evil in the world? The Bible doesn't tell us about the origin of evil, but it does record the entrance of evil into the universe and into the world. I have come to be convinced that Exodus or Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, which are prophecies directed towards the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon, give us some insight or some awareness of a power or a force behind those kings, which many attribute to Satan. And I think we can learn something from there. Erwin Lutzer, a pastor of Moody Church, commenting on Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 15, writes, with breathtaking comment, we have a description of how sin entered the universe. And what is Ezekiel 28, 15? You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. That describes the entrance of sin into the universe. That Satan was originally created righteous and blameless until unrighteousness entered into him. And then you come to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and you find that Adam and Eve were created perfect and blameless until unrighteousness entered into them. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. What's unmistakable is that the snake in the garden was evil. It's clear that the rebellion that happened in the heavenly places happened before Genesis 3.1. Because this snake, disguised as, or because this serpent snake, this dragon snake, was already evil and came into the world that God had made to tempt Eve and Adam. Loved ones, I don't believe this is fable. Let's make up a story about how sin entered into the world. Let's make up a story about why the world is as it is. I don't believe it's a parable either. What's the moral of the story? Don't listen to talking snakes. It's not a legend. This is a historical account of humanity's fall into sin. Eve was in the garden of God, this perfect garden. She was probably around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A reptile, snake, dragon approached her and said, hey, Eve, did God really say? Eve was neither shocked nor taken aback by this, but without hesitation, entered into a conversation with this reptile. 
And you know what I think? I think that's exactly what took place. As do the New Testament writers affirm that that's what took place. And if it didn't take place that way, then we can't trust God's word at any point. If it didn't take that place that way, then how can we believe that Jesus died on the cross? How can we believe the gospel? You can't have part of the Bible, but not all of the Bible. The Bible reveals to us that God is absolutely sovereign over everything that exists in the universe, seen and unseen. The snake in the garden didn't catch God by surprise. It was not something that God had made this perfect world and all of a sudden there's an oops and somewhere out of nowhere appeared this snake. In Titus chapter one, verses one to two, Paul begins his letter this way. He says, I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. The truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God who does not lie promised them before the world began. Before any of this happened, God knew what was going to take place. You know, you can only have a proper understanding of the serpent if you have a proper understanding of God. Only when we stand in awe of God, of Scripture, the God revealed to us, will we have the proper view of this serpent or Satan. The Bible is a book about God's power, about God's plan, and about God's purposes in the world. And even though you might conclude, or even in your own personal life, you might have come to the place where you think that Satan is great. And make no mistake, he is powerful. He is mighty. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But he is not great to God. And there is coming a day, and I hope it's this afternoon, when the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. What a day that will be. But until then, get on the side of the hero who kills the dragon and saves the girl. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Your love for us is expressed by giving us scripture, by telling us why the world is as it is, by telling us how it all came to be. Lord, it's the best description we have of why the world is as he is. I, there's lots of ways that we can look around us and try and make sense of the world, but none of them actually are as coherent as your word. And so I thank you that you have loved us enough to give us a written record of our world, of our universe, of why it is the way it is, but of what will be one day when you bring us back to the garden to enjoy your perfect presence once again. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.